my name is Valerie Tell. I'm the pastoral resident here, um, and I have the privilege to bring the word today. Um, as is our practice, if you would like to or able to stand as we read God's word, I will be reading from James chapter 5, verses 1 to 6. Now listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that is coming upon you. Your wealth has rotted and moss have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the innocent one who was not opposing you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can have a seat. So I don't know about you. But when I hear a passage like that, it doesn't make me want to be like, oh my gosh, what is God saying? It's a very harsh passage. It can be a difficult one both to hear and, and to, to preach, to be honest. Um, and taken on its own, it's, it sounds like a very harsh judgment, and it is. But taken in context of what came before and what comes afterwards, we'll see that maybe it's a little bit more hopeful because James calls his audience and James calls us further into trusting God's provision and that God as the only worthy judge in judging the rich is making all things right as they should be. James is writing to communities of Jewish followers of Jesus who are mostly poor mostly uneducated and likely either going through or under some threat of persecution. James is writing to people who are oppressed. And through this letter, James repeatedly speaks to the conflict between the rich and the poor, the oppressor and the oppressed. In James 1, 9 to 11, James talks about lifting up believers in humble circumstances encouraging them to take pride in their high position while t encouraging the rich to take pride in their humiliation because riches and wealth are like wildflowers that will just pass away. In chapter 2, verses 1 to 7, James then cautions against aspiring to be rich and warns against giving any rich people special treatment because God has chosen the poor to inherit the kingdom of God. And if anyone is to show favoritism to the rich over the poor, they're not on God's side. And then comes James 5, where we're at today, addressing the judgment of the rich. Rich. This is by far the harshest treatment in James and I would argue one of the harsher treatments in the whole Bible of the rich. But we must remember that the original audience for James, book of James, was primarily people who were poor and oppressed. James does not warn rich oppressors of their impending judgment so that the oppressed can be like, all right, right? Like, now I can feel vindicated. Now God is going to bring revenge on these people that have been oppressing me. God is the only worthy judge. We talked about this last week where God is the only one who is able to pronounce life and death. And so James is not announcing this judgment of the rich 
only to have the oppressed take God's place as judge. God will judge the rich, and they will receive what is due to them. But James isn't writing to the rich in mind, so this sermon is not going to be on the perils of being rich, although there are many. James is instead writing to a primarily oppressed audience and telling them that God will judge. And this is meant to encourage the oppressed to say, God is on your side. And so chapter 5, verse 4 tells that the cries of the harvesters who have lost wages, who have unpaid wages, have indeed reached the ears of God. And that God hears them is an encouragement and a reminder that God is with them and that God is for them. And that God will make all things right in the end through God's judgment. Starting in uh, chapter 5, verse 7, James moves towards telling the oppressed how they are to be patient in suffering. How are they to wait through these difficult times? And Pastor David will touch on that next week. But for today, we're here in, in the first six chapters. And it's tempting to look at this and figure out how do we not be rich so we're not the ones to be judged. Because nobody wants to be judged. Right, But keeping in mind that James is writing to people who are oppressed, we're going to look at this passage primarily as that, as one who's, that is written to people who are poor without much financial means, as much of the early church was. So through that lens, we'll examine what it means to live fully trusting God for our provision, no matter what that provision is, because ultimately God is our provider and our source of sustenance. In this passage, James is reminding his audience that God will judge the rich and God is on the side of the oppressed and that they must trust that God who is on their side and we must trust that God for our daily needs. So today we'll explore two ways to trust God with our material and financial needs. In James 5, 1 to 3, we see a negative example of what trying to find security in wealth rather than in God looks like. As if James has not already been direct enough, James doesn't beat around the bush or like say a lot of niceties or do this high theology thing. James just cuts to the chase. Verse 1 says, rich people weep and wail because misery is coming upon you. This occurrence in James for the word wail is the only time in the New Testament that this word is used. But in the Old Testament, it's used 18 times. It's used 18 times And the Jewish audience that's listening to this would know when they hear this word, it's to say that immediately there's impending judgment coming because this word has been used in Isaiah and Hosea and Amos, basically calling judgment upon people. So their ears would perk up and they would knew judgment's coming. And so on judgment day, the rich, the arrogant, the selfish, they will be judged. And in no uncertain terms, in very harsh terms, James is dismissing the mistaken belief of the rich that if they have enough stuff and money, that they can be secure. Security, as we find out very quickly, cannot be found in that wealth. And there are eternal consequences for those that do accumulate this wealth. In verse 2, James simply starts describing the state of these riches as evidence against the rich. These money, this money and this clothes that have been saved up, the wealth in which rich people have saved up and put their security and their stability in, it's rotting, it's spoiling, and it's become useless. The wealth is useless literally because it is not being used. It's doing nothing but sitting there. James then goes a step further 
to emphasize the uselessness of this accumulated wealth by describing the gold and silver that has corroded. Corroded means rust. It rusts and it becomes no good. It becomes worthless. And this is especially significant because gold and silver in that time, just like this time, is valued for its resistance to rust, for its ability and its ability to be refined and to be pure and to be beautiful. And it's refined, what's used to refine it is the process of fire. You know, when you get gold or silver out of the ground, it doesn't look all shiny. It's kind of dull. And so the way that it becomes shiny and valuable is that fire burns away the impurities and makes the metal valuable because only when there's a certain amount of impurity burned away is it, is it valuable for something. Otherwise, it just looks like a rock. But in the case of this accumulated wealth, fire becomes the destroying force, not the refining force. It can no longer purify the metals because it's been sitting there uselessly. They've corroded because they haven't been used. They've been hoarded. They've been languishing, and they're just sitting there. And so the first way we trust God for our material and financial need is finding our security in God. So when kids are babies, and sometimes beyond that, and sometimes in specific seasons of life, there's something called separation anxiety. And so any parent that's here probably knows what that means, but it's when the kid is separated from the parent and there's some sort of anxiety that manifests itself in crying or screaming or misbehavior in some sort of way because the kids are insecure about their ability to, to that their parent's going to come back. But when my kids first went to preschool, they cried every day. Every day when we dropped them off, they would cry and cry and cry. Sometimes we'd have to pry them off of us and hand them to the teacher that was waiting. And they would be upset sometimes. We would find out they'd be upset for like sometimes hours after we left. But then at some point, it was a different point for each of them, but at some point, they just walked right into class. And it didn't matter if it was raining outside or if it was sunny or when COVID happened and then we could only drop them off at the door. It didn't matter whether it was summer or if they came off a two-week winter break. Generally, it didn't matter what the circumstance was because they knew at that point that their parents would come back, that when they were at school, they'd be taken care of, that their teachers would love them, and that it was a safe place to be. And so finding our security in God is like being that child who can walk into school no matter what happens, no matter what the external situation is, and then we know that our needs will be taken care of no matter what transpires, no matter how much money we have, no matter what we have. Finding security in God is trusting that no matter what external circumstances are, that our God will be faithful and will take care of us and will be God no matter what the situation. While James seeks to elevate the care of the poor, the goal is for not, not for everyone to be poor. And at the same token, by calling out the impending judgment of the rich, the goal is not for everyone to be rich, but rather the goal is for everyone, regardless of what their circumstances, to put their trust and hope and security in God to provide for their needs and to trust God's timing and provision no matter what the circumstance, because God is our creator and provider and will provide for our needs in this life or the life to come. So the first way that we trust God for a material and financial need is by putting our security 
in God. And so one way we can put our security in God is to acknowledge the reality that money gives us the illusion of control. So having money gives us an illusion of control and comfort. Because I would say no matter what tax bracket we're at, we've all experienced that desire to control. Oh, if only I could have X amount of cash in the bank, I'll feel secure. If only I can get this job or that apartment or this home, then everything will be okay. If only I could get this car or that degree or I can take care of my kids' education or take care of my parents when they need it, then it'll, I'll feel secure. But the reality is none of these if-only situations actually gives us security. None of these situations actually allows us to dictate our lives. It just gives us more perceived control over our life and our finances because the reality is there are circumstances beyond our control and the bottom can drop out at any time. And so we can only trust God for our material and financial needs by first acknowledging to God that we want this control. And there's nothing wrong with wanting to live our lives to have enough or to have a roof over our heads or to take care of those that we love or that you know, we think that only God, God is only good when these conditions are met. Those are natural feelings. But we have to acknowledge that they're there. Another way we find security in God is by recognizing that God is our provider for all things. James 1, 16 to 17 reads, Do not be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. When we acknowledge that any money or any resource, anything that we have had nothing to do with us in the first place, then we can trust God with our well-being, with our finances, with our daily living, because God is the only one to make that provision in the first place. It doesn't matter what we did, how much we made, what family we were born into, God is the one that gives that provision. And so here in James and elsewhere, the Bible talks of the difficulty that rich people have in being faithful followers of God. And this is not for the lack of trying or desiring. And it's not impossible for people with financial means to follow God. It just takes a lot more intentionality and a lot more thought. Because when someone's used to entrusting themselves to provide, then it can be difficult to recognize that God is the one that made that provision in the first place, and to recognize that God and not ourselves is truly providing for us. When we recognize that God is our provider and that all things were God's to begin with, we can hold our finances more loosely because we had no claim on, on them to begin with. And so the first way we trust God for our material and financial needs is by putting our security in God. The second way we trust God for our material and financial need is by stewarding whatever God gives us towards the flourishing of all of God's people. And so in verses uh, 4 to 6, James again gives us a negative example of how money is not to be used. It'd be nicer if he said, just go do this, but he wants to really bring it and say, this is how you shouldn't do it. So now not only have the rich people hoarded their wealth for their own benefit and security, but they've also withheld wages due to the workers that have tended and kept to their fields. They've exploited the work of these day laborers who work in their fields for their own gain. And James is calling out these rich landowners on their own abuse of power. 
Money that's supposed to be in the hands of workers has stayed with the landowners even after work has been done. And these landowners have used their privilege and their wealth to avoid paying them, and there's been no consequence. This still happens today, right? And so to withhold salary is like taking the life of the worker because these were day laborers, and that means exactly that. To not pay them was to literally take their ability to continue living. Um, as verse six, in verse 6, James uses metaphorical imagery likening the withholding of wages to the murder of innocent workers. And so in not paying the day laborers, the, li- the rich people are figuratively and literally withholding their ability to pay for the next day. When they're day laborers, they, they make a certain amount of money, basically just enough to pay for food and for lodging for the next day. And so, in effect, the rich people are condemning and taking life from those working for them because they can't even pay for the next day to show up at work. And so in the first century world, when we're hearing this, for, when the people were hearing the letter for the first time, day laborers, as they are today, are still subsistence workers. They would get, you know, a denarius, which would cover just their expenses for the day. So it was not like something that they were in to make money. It was something they were in to basically stay off the streets. And so when their salary was withheld, they could not even feed themselves to theoretically survive for the next day. And so they're wasting away. And so again, James uses and personifies the actual money, the actual wages that were not paid to the day laborers as testifying in a court of law against these rich people who have withheld them. James's Jewish audience would understand the gravity of this withholding because they would again hear this law and they would think of Leviticus 19.13, which says, do not defraud or rob your neighbor. Do not hold back the wages of a hired worker. And so in disobeying this law, the rich people are putting themselves above the law and putting themselves in the place of God saying, I don't need to follow this law. And so withholding wages is such an egregious omission that these wages, these coins speak for themselves and say, this isn't right. So in James 4.17 in the previous chapter, which is uh, the last verse immediately preceding this this passage, it says, if anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. And so the sin here is that the rich people are not paying the people that have worked for them. The sin here is that money is being accumulated for their own security rather than being used for the flourishing of all creation, of all people, of all communities. And all throughout James, we have seen that James elevates the fact that God is on the side of the oppressed and pushes the community to elevate the concerns of the oppressed. And so the sin here that James is pointing out is that when money just sits and rots and corrodes, it's by default not being used for good work. It's not being used for God's work. When money just sits there, creation cannot flourish because it's just sitting there. And so the second way we trust God for our material and financial need is by stewarding whatever God gives us towards the flourishing of all creation. And so there's a difference between an attitude of stewardship and of ownership. Stewardship recognizes that what we have was never ours to begin with, whereas ownership says it's mine and I'm going to do what I want with it. Stewardship shifts the goal from what I can get to my, for myself to what I can do to best make sure that the purposes of the giver are fulfilled. So a steward is like basically acting on behalf of someone else. 
So they've been charged with fulfilling a specific purpose on behalf of another. It's kind of like having a power of attorney. So a power of attorney, I'm, I don't know if there's any lawyers here, but it's a legal document, so hopefully I don't butcher this if there is, but it's a legal document that, that allows someone to be designated to make decisions on someone else's behalf when that person is unable to do so. And so if given a financial power of attorney, sometimes this happens after death or when somebody can't make decisions for themselves, the sole purpose of that financial power of attorney is to make financial decisions that have either been laid out by the person that's empowered them or to make decisions that the person that has empowered them to make decisions would make. When we see ourselves as stewards of the resources God has been given us, then we use them towards God's ends and not our own. It's like being deputized by God to be a power of attorney to say, I'm only going to do with what I have with what God wants. My own, my own, um, my own desires are not going to factor in. It's, using our resources and our money with God's intentions in mind and not ours. So it would be really nice if it happened that easily, right? Like there's this thing that happens and we can just make decisions for God, right? But it's not. And so here's some practical ways that, in little ways, that we can trust God for our material and financial need by stewarding whatever God gives us towards the flourishing of all of creation. And so one way we can steward whatever God gives us so all of creation can flourish is by leveraging the privilege or capital that we have towards making sure everybody has enough. Wage theft is a real thing, just like in this passage where the day laborers were not getting paid for the work that they're being done and it affects their lives. This situation still happens today with day laborers. And there's other ways that many powerful corporations or specific bosses can abuse their own power for their own benefit at the expense of their workers. This may include misclassifying employees as independent contractors to avoid paying taxes. It might mean keeping people in positions that they're overqualified for so that you can pay them less for the same amount of work. It might mean paying women or people of color less than a man or a white person would get paid for the same work. Or it might be having a culture of work that requires employees to consistently work overtime without getting paid for it. All of these can fall into the category of just doing things the way things have been done, because these are not uncommon practices. But we can steward our privilege and our capital and our money, even at the expense of our own financial security, when we know that this is God's gift, because we can use the position of privilege that we have whether it's as a manager or as an owner or as somebody who can speak into those things, to speak out against these unjust situations of wage theft. And by using the power that we do have to make sure that when we can affect it, people can be compensated fairly. And so we can steward our privilege and social capital by advocating for policies that allow for the flourishing of all of God's people in our own workplaces, in our own lives, but we can also do this at a systemic level by advocating for policies that close that wage gap, that offer paid family leave, or that don't require checking a box if you've had a criminal history. We can use our privilege to influence our legislators to pass bills that support initiatives that compensate people fairly. Another way we can steward whatever God gives us towards the flourishing of all of creation is to link our own personal well-being and the well-being of those we care about with the well-being and the flourishing of all of creation. 
The main concern that James has in this passage is for the well-being of the poor and the oppressed. James' concern is that the poor be elevated, that they might become right, that they might holistically flourish. And so ask yourself these questions and reflect on them with your, for yourself. Does the way that I or we live allow those who have less than I do to live more fully? Or does the way that I live diminish the quality of life for those who have less? Does what I or we do with our money increase the quality of life for those who have less than we do? Or does our mon- the what we do with our money decrease or just maintain a subsistence quality of life for those who have less than we do? I think we're all on both sides of that question, right? And lastly, we can steward whatever God gives us towards the flourishing of all of creation but by, by being willing to make personal sacrifices so that others might flourish. What would it look like for us to entrust our lives and our own finances to God by being willing to see our flourishing as a collective flourishing rather than an individual one? It might look like being concerned with not just having enough resources to take care of our own family and our own parents, but for everyone who's getting older and requires care. It would look like wanting to make sure there's enough to pay for not only quality education for the children that we have or in our neighborhood or that we care about, but for all children to have a quality education. It would be making sure that everyone who wants to better themselves through education, not just the degree that we want to get, or any child in our community has the opportunity to go to college without taking on a mountain of debt. It would look like being willing when there's a need to give and to give of our own financial resources, not just when we have a margin, but because when there's a need. It means that even if our budget would be tighter or we would lack for something, that we're willing to give so that others can also flourish. It's for the good of another, and it entrusts our financial security to God to make these choices because it acknowledges that God is the one that gave us these, whatever we have, however much that dollar amount is in the first place. It gives us the opportunity to trust God, that God will provide in God's time because God always has, rather than letting our wealth or our resources pile up and accumulate and start to corrode. It says, I have them. If there's a need, I'm going to give them because God will provide when I have a need. And so we can steward whatever God gives us towards the flourishing of all of creation when we are willing to be radically generous to the point of trusting in God's provision rather than saying we have to provide for ourselves and we're in control of our own destinies. So as I move to conclude, this passage reminds us, James reminds his audience and us that God will judge the rich and that God is on the side of the oppressed and we all must trust God for our daily needs. Today we explore two ways to trust God with our material and financial needs. The first way we trust God is that we put our security in God rather than in ourselves or in something else. The second way that we trust God to provide is by stewarding whatever God gives us towards the flourishing of all people. And so what is God calling you to do in response to God's word today? Our passage for today has echoes of Matthew, echoes of Jesus in Matthew 6:19 to 21 and 24 to 20, to 34. 
And it reads, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more important than food and the body more important than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not so much more valuable than they? Can any of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow? They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the fields, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will God not much more clothe you, you of little faith? So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble on its own. Where is your treasure today? And therefore, where is your heart? When you hear this sermon, when you hear these difficult words, what do you worry about? What makes you feel uncomfortable or anxious? What's the Holy Spirit saying to you that you're like, eh, I don't really want to do that? But good news, friends. God knows what we need. God will take care of us. God will take care of all of God's good creation. God has brought us to this point. God is our provider. No matter what we have or do not have, the call is the same. Whatever God is doing in you, let God do it. Trust God to be your security. Steward the things that God has given you so that everybody can flourish. And so whatever God is doing with you right now, I encourage you to let it sit, let it marinate, and share with somebody what's going on in you so that you can together, so we together can see what God is doing in us and that we can respond together. So let's pray. Lord God, you are good and you are our provider. You have taken care of each and every one of us. You have taken care of your people from the beginning of time until the end. And so, Lord God, I pray that you would show us how to put our security and our trust in you for all of the things that you provide. Lord, help us to trust in your timing. Help us to trust in your goodness. Help us to live in ways that live um, 
obedient to you, not in a um, in a way to avoid judgment or punishment, but one that lives fully into the reality that you're calling us into, to make all things new, to bring death out of life, and to join you in the good work that you're doing. Amen.